Reading from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 6 through 12. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that reading, Shelley. The kids are invited to Kids Church. I'm astonished that you are so, or grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul last week brought the Galatians to the edge of worship together with that opening. And this week, he jumps into, I'm astonished. I'm amazed at how quickly you're deserting the gospel that I taught you. Um, Things are moving fast in the book of Galatians. Last week I talked about how, you know, we're reading other people's letters 2,000 years later, and we don't have all the content that came with this. We don't know what the other teachers that Paul is accusing here exactly are teaching. We don't know the content of everything that's going on. And yet we ask how God can speak to us this letter today, how we can hear it again ourselves. So here is that first glimpse of conflict I alluded to and Paul uh, didn't quite allude to last week. We talked about last week how most of Paul's letters at this point shift to thankfulness for the congregation that is there. And yet this one goes straight into, I'm astonished. And so the poster to the Saints of Defiance um, would fit all of Paul's other letters except for this one, and that was my mistake. Um, Here he wants to say, uh, um, how do you return to the gospel that you have heard and that has been brought to you? And so he told them about the God who gives himself up for their sins and rescues them from the present evil age. And that use of father several times, too, was about this adoption that's going to come later in this letter. But Paul begins with astonishment that these people are quickly deserting the one who called you to live in grace. His astonishment here is how quickly people are turning. Now, one of the things that that people point out with this is that... um, Paul is, is, the phrase that he uses that he's astonished how quick they are turning is similar to the way that um, somebody in the first century described how quickly the Egyptians turned to worshiping the golden calf after their rescue. And so Exodus is, is this overlay map, I think, that will help us understand Galatians better too, is that he rescued you from the present evil age. 
He brought you out of slavery to sin and death. He brought you out of slavery to Pharaoh in that first exodus. In this new exodus, he's bringing you out of slavery to sin and death into new life. And so Paul is astonished that they have abandoned this gospel. But our our knowledge of what happens to people when they get saved by God, at least from my experience, is how quickly they can turn to other things that that can maybe take credit for that freedom. I think this is true if we look at our own lives to some degree, is that when we receive some sort of gift, um, I don't know, for me, it's it's, you go... um, and you experience some sense of God's goodness in your life, some sense of, of somebody loving and caring for you, something else like this. And you go away and you're, you're astounded to say, I will walk a better path or I will be more grateful or I will live in a different way. And for me, at least, the hardest fall is right after that. My, my life goes, it's like a, if it were a graph, it'd go like I went up to here and then within the next week, it's way down to here. And then I do come back up, but there's something about when we begin to, to have moments like that, I think we begin to think there must be something more here rather than trusting what we know, rather than giving gratitude over and over again, or rather than seeing that again, we, we jump to something else, or we begin to be um, confident in our own position. And so this is, I think, how memory works for some of these things in the Bible is that you are to remember what God has done for you in Jesus Christ or what he's done with a mighty arm in rescuing you from Egypt, not to remember how it felt for you, not to trust in your own emotions going forth from that, but to trust in what God has done and that feeling, knowing that. I think too often we want to collapse these things into ourselves. And that, that's what Paul is amazed at here, is that they're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Um, let's see, I have, I think, I wanted to do a, a Martin Luther quote every week. I don't know. The gospel differs from the law in that whereas the law proclaims what must be done or not done, and therefore does no more than explain what sin is. The gospel proclaims that sins have been forgiven and that everything has been fulfilled. That was on my way to getting to what I wanted to get to, sorry. Um, This is the text that we'll be walking through at the start of the sermon. Um, He's astonished that they have turned. This is uh, J. Lewis Martin's translation that we used last week, which I think helps capture this in a way that sort of startles us. Because here he says, you're turning your allegiance to a different gospel on that certain thing. And, And what Martin will use here is the language of deserting, defecting, the faith, that you're defecting from the gospel that has called you. You're leaving, in some sense, this this place in which you've brought in, and you are um, pledging allegiance to a different gospel. But Paul continues, not that there really is another gospel, but the point is that there are now among you some persons who are frightening you and are preaching, uh, are frightening you, and whose preaching shows that they wish to change the gospel of Christ into its opposite. Here's the conflict that led to Galatians. And what Brian read for us from um, 2 Corinthians this morning, too, is that this early Christian sphere is a compounded sphere of which gospel or which gospels or which good news or how are Jewish Christian relations going to play out, how are Jewish Christian pagan relations going to play out. All these things are laying over each other into this first world. And so oftentimes, I think, when we read the Bible, uh, either we ignore these notes that there's more going on or we just don't know, um, and so we just skip over them. But this first century world is heightened in its conflict on which gospel the people will go to. 
Um, And what Paul says here is it's not really another gospel at all. But what they're doing is frightening you. And his preaching shows that they wish to change the gospel of Christ into its opposite. There's a part of it in which Paul's gospel is not a frightening gospel. Paul's gospel is not one that's meant to scare you. At my last church, there was a pastor in the area who used to say he loved preaching at funerals because it was like shooting fish in a barrel. And you could see that might be some other gospel. He's not preaching the gospel that's not meant to frighten you. He wants to use some element of fright or fear to induce you into that. Whereas Paul is trying to tell the people that this gospel is the opposite of the gospel that Christ preached. Uh, what I want to do and when we, after we finish going through this is I want to talk about gospel and I want to talk about apocalypse, which is the two passages, but I'll finish this part, is that it's some sense in the opposite. Now, um, Paul's gospel is this announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ, and so its opposite is perhaps what you might do for God and Jesus Christ. So you see this turn that's happening here with the people is that people are coming and announcing this gospel is about what you can do rather than what God has done. And Paul is right that that's not really good news at all. At least not good news if you sit with yourself long enough, you know, to figure out where your flaws and where you might not live up to this. If it's a gospel of human effort, if it's a gospel of of sort of assembling things back together, it's bound to fail is what Paul says. And again, uh, this next session where Paul is going to say, am I trying to win the approval of human beings? Paul is accused of being a people pleaser. Um, Which I think so many modern people, we were talking about this at the Bible study this week, um, think Paul is like the legalist, the hard one, this, that, and the other, and Jesus is the nice, kind one, uh, which is the, the false teachers in Galatians are accusing Paul of being a people pleaser. Um, this, I think when we slow down and sit with this message, we find that Paul is radically different than many of us expect him to. There was a book that came out a couple years ago uh, called uh, Jesus I Have Loved, But Paul, dot, dot, dot. In some sense, there's this I love Jesus, but I don't love Paul thing. And what people find if they're, if they're interested in um, who talks about hell the most, it's not the Apostle Paul. It's Jesus. It's, it's Jesus, this great moral teacher thing that we can't, uh, I think it was uh, David last week who said at the, the Bible study, is like, we can't blame Jesus, so we have to blame Paul. Um, Paul, Paul gets in trouble for us. But this is not really a gospel at all. Then he continues, but um, regardless of who might preach it, whether myself or an angel from heaven, if someone should preach to you a gospel contrary to the gospel I preached to you, let them stand under a curse. And as I have said before, I say now once again, if someone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you originally saved, let them stand under God's curse. This uh, curse word is, is one sense where we get the phrase anathema, let them be cut off. Um, that is anathema, um, is, is sort of the phrase there. But it's also the one that in um, uh, the book of Joshua, when they go out, the, the ban to destroy all the idols in the cities that they go to, in Hebrew would be similar to this. It's to say, let that be put out. Let that be stamped out. 
And Paul, he says, even if an angel from heaven were to preach this, there's, there's in some sense in which the teacher's message might have been that our angel Moses received the law on from high, and so you are to take this on yourself. One of the things they're trying to, the teachers are trying to conduct out of, um, of the people here is to say that you are actually sort of going to live in a Jewish um, law-based gospel freedom. It's going to be some sort of synthesis of those two, some sort of makeup of those two things. Whereas Paul, uh, he preaches what they say is this law-free gospel. There is nothing else you can add to it. And so this is the phrase that, that Paul is using, evangelion, um, which we get the phrase evangelical or evangelism from, for gospel. Um, this is the phrase in which he is using that. And now we um, hear this primarily as a church word. It's the evangelism. It's the evangelical gospel that God is proclaiming. But in the first century, this is a highly political word. Or this is, is, is the good news, the glad tidings that you might experience with, with the invitation to something. Here's an example of, of how it appears in the first uh, century world. Whereas the providence that ordains our whole life has been established with zeal and distinction that brought that which in us, uh, distinction that which is most perfect in our life by bringing Augustus, who she filled with virtue as a benediction to all humanity, sending to us and to those after us a Savior, just a similar Greek word that we use for Jesus as a Savior, who put to an end of war and brought order to all things. The birth of God, Theos, was the beginning of the good news, uh, the glad tidings, the evangelion, the gospel, to the world through him. This would have been common in the first century world that when you received a gospel, you received an announcement normally about the Roman Empire, normally about something that had happened. And so what Paul is calling his message is this political thing that says this is good news and glad tidings. One of the most common uses of this in the first century is good news or glad tidings from the field of battle. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying that my message is a gospel of good news being proclaimed to you by messengers of what God has done in the field of battle of redeeming humanity from sin and death, from the present evil age, and bringing them into the new kingdom, which is new creation and new life. So Paul's gospel is this gospel of this crucified one. On the back of the bulletin, I found this quote this week, the cross is the signature of the one who is risen. So often, um, Paul will use the crucifixion as shorthand for his entire gospel, that Jesus is the crucified Messiah, is almost Paul's stand-in announcement. Now, in other places, he'll add on that um, he died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised to new life according to the scriptures. That's in uh, the Corinthian letters. But most often, he'll just talk about the crucified one. Ernest Kaysman, though, came up with the phrase, the cross is the signature of the one who was risen. In this context, if Paul were only preaching a crucified Jewish Messiah, saying cross would mean nothing. It would be another failed plot and attempt. And so when Paul says the crucified one, the one who bore the cross, the one who died in that way, it's the signature of the one who is risen. It's in some sense saying, I've reclaimed that. I stand as the victor over 
that. That the cross becomes the shorthand for that, that sort of phrase. And so Paul's evangelical gospel, his, his evangelion, is, is the announcement of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ overturning the world. And this is, I think, interesting for us because if somebody asks you the gospel or me the gospel, I would say, well, Jesus died for your sins and you should probably pray this prayer and bring him into your heart and that will set you free and, and be this to the life. But for Paul, it's first and foremost an announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ that shifts the foundations of the world. So often we try to slot ourselves as big actors in this story in our own decision moments when in fact what Paul is saying is first and foremost the news and announcement of a victory from a battlefield far away or one near and close but in this way in which God has victory over the powers. God is overturning this world that was captive in this way and is often still captive in this way. But God has enabled a new creation to take birth in his churches. This is Paul's evangelical gospel, his evangelion. And one of the things that as I was thinking this week um, of, of what are the gospels we trade for in this way. Uh, here's a list of, of some of them. And this, uh, John Mark Comer, Rachel and Zane, who have come a couple times, they, I had been listened to John Mark Comer's sermon series. And they, I, for those of you who don't know, I try to listen to one sermon a week because you guys do, so why shouldn't I? Um, we're fair, we're keeping it even. Um, uh, there's no grace here, it's law. Um, uh, and so I was, they were doing, oh, he's, he's leaving and he's, he's trying to give his church. Um, uh, uh, distilling them the gospel truth all over again before he leaves to take on his new call and his church gets new leadership. And in one of the sermon series, he's, he walks through the other gospels in which we might surrender ourselves to. The first is, is the one we hear about a lot today is the prosperity gospel. Um, and I don't perhaps see that as big of a problem in our midst, so I don't want to spend a lot of time. It's a uh, uh, Parker Palmer has this phrase that uh, when has talking about people not in the room ever improved anything. Um, and so as I don't picture a lot of here people believing the prosperity gospel, what would talking about it do? But it's this notion in some sense it's got two forms. One is in, that God is, um, if you give $100, God will give you $1,000. This is the, the more, I would say, heretical pro prosperity gospel, the one that sort of like says, if you believe enough in this and that and the other, no sickness, no that will ever happen to you. If you trust, if you act in these ways, if you're really with the Spirit, there's no way you'll ever get touched by any of the bad things in the world. And this one, I think, is, is more in air. Nowadays, we see a different sort of form of prosperity gospel that's a little bit softer, but still has this, this belief that if you take the Christ victorious life into you, your life will be purely victorious which come, would come as news to all of the first century followers who pretty much died brutal deaths. Um, there's a, the, the Campus Crusade gospel, which would fall under the evangelical one coming up, that says God has, loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which is the first uh, rule of the four spiritual laws. Somebody made a graph of, of uh, like James, uh, murdered, uh, so-and-so crucified upside down, so-and-so abandoned to an island, like the wonderful plan God has for your life may not look like the wonderful plan you think you have for your life. Um, and so this prosperity gospel um, is one of the ones we say change. Uh, John Mark picked on the Reformed and Evangelical gospel. The Reformed is first this sort of tr transactional gospel that God stamps you with justification. Um, and what, what I think I would say is all these are true, 
to some extent, but in what they make major, they minimize other things that are equally or maybe more true. Does God love you and have a plan for your life? Yes. But is that plan to, to if you believe fully in him, to have um, uh, a mansion and a nice car? No. Like, and so a lot of these are trading things that are still in there and that are true for the whole truth of the thing. The Reformed Gospel um, is often this one that's very highly transactional and that God is a judge and God who sits on this court and sort of wipes out your sins as sort of a, um, a, uh, a modern sort of courtroom analogy, that you're guilty and then somebody stands in your stead. And so this becomes the Gospel, which doesn't quite capture the announcement of what God has done through Jesus Christ. This one is more a story about um, how we are in relationship to God. And in driving this story, the Reformed one, is, is a universe of sort of law rather than a universe of gospel. Um, it doesn't quite deal with the good news uh, as well. And the evangelical one in the gospel one, and unfortunately all of them, I think, tend to cut off the resurrection as much, except for maybe the prosperity gospel, is they're all cross-focused gospels, but they have nothing to say about Easter. Back when I was in Oregon, we went to a winery that had the Rosen, Roman's Road uh, infused upon the floor as if I went wine tasting, and today seems like a good day to be introduced to the gospel um, by reading this off the floor as we walked to our tasting room. Um, I was very turned off by the whole thing. Um, uh, but the Roman's Road ends before any Paul's reference to the resurrection, that track. There is no, that God... He dies to forgive your sins, but know that he resurrects to bring you into new life. That would be the evangelical one. The evangelical one also has this phrase we've used before that comes from Dallas Willard. It brings us into a gospel of sin and management. What do you do after you're saved? Just try to sin less. The gospel doesn't become about this world-transforming news that God has done for us, but it becomes about managing our bad behavior. Which again, true, but it isn't the whole life that God has for us. The social gospel, um, which is this early 1900s gospel that, uh, if you're familiar with the fr man, Walter Raschenbusch, uh, Walter Raschenbusch sort of took onto him sort of bringing about all of the change in the world that was promised by God and, and sought to alleviate poverty and um, uh, just was charged with sort of bringing the kingdom here. And Walter and other early 1900s um, uh, believers of this sort thought that they could actually bring the kingdom here. My church history professor had, uh, he came from four, th three generations of pastors, and the grandfather, when he held up a Twinkie, he thought it was the miracle that someday we will feed the whole world, because there was no real food in it. Um, but this is that sort of, the social gospel actually thought that this was the full goal, that we would bring this to pass, rather than that God would bring this to pass. So again, we are supposed to be engaged in reforming our world and meeting the needs of the poor and the needy. But to see that as our grand project in which we will save the whole world ourselves is to miss the point of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Those are the three that, that or four that John Mark tackled, but there's two that I thought he missed. One is the political gospel, and this one goes to both sides of our modern political spectrum. Um, one of my favorite things is people who grew up in sort of evangelical um, households that uh, were dominated by Rush Limbaugh or conservative politics often say, I will repair what my parents did wrong by doubling down on the other side of politics. I don't understand, instead of seeing freedom from, 
the political, they just jump into the opposite side. And this is where you can uh, actually see the phrase, two sides of the same coin becoming to pass. And this gospel just looks at everything as if it could be slotted into one of the two major political parties of our age. And our life is bound in support to those things. This is one of those gospels, I think, that creeps up. Edward, uh, Eric Vogelin, um, who was a social theorist of the 1950s, uh, thought that sexuality actually wasn't strong enough of a power for people to build their lives on. And over time, as the sexual revolution passed, that we would actually double down on politics all over again. That, that he saw that what is, and I think we see this happening more and more in our modern world, that politics becomes the ultimate religion of sorts. And it's hard to talk to people, and I've tried to do this more, and I should try uh, harder, although gospel opposed to human effort. <laughs> but but to, to, to sit with people and to say, what have you seen that's been good? and true and beautiful in the past week since we talked? What books have you read that have spoken to you? Is there some new series on Netflix that you are binge-watching in your evenings that you could share with me about? Again, the, the, this is so much of what, like, um, and I don't think the pandemic has made this easier because now we talk about that in veiled political ways. Uh, um, you know, about uh, all the challenges that come with that. Is your school masking, not masking? Is your school, um, uh, or, or you're vaccinated, not vaccinated? All these sort of challenges that come with our beliefs in these things. And those are just really veiled political arguments, I think. Because most often, if one person answers a certain way, you just slot them into a box anyways, and then you know exactly how they think about everything else which is probably not true, but that's part of the way we think in our modern world. And so this political one, I think, is perhaps one of the ones we most need to resist. The other ones, I think, are ones that, that eke up, but this one, I think, um, is going to become more and more the truth of what we feel about the world. And these are, I want to be clear, extras to the gospel. Paul is saying that the gospel is the announcement, the news, the glad tidings, that Christ has defeated sin and darkness and death and rescued us and is bringing us into new creation and the new age. And so if you say gospel plus, Paul says anathema. It's just the gospel. It's not gospel and gospel this. Gospel, but we also believe in, in um uh, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or gospel and we believe that you will never get sick again or gospel and we believe that like try to sin less. Like it's just the announcement of what God has done. And Paul has an ethic that the believers are to subscribe to but this ethic comes out of the new creation world in which he is inviting you to step into through the gospel. It is not the gospel itself. The gospel is the announcement of what God has done. No sermon series or, or enemies of the church today would, would not be complete without me referencing moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism is this sort of benign sort of faith thing that they, uh, sociologists think, has not only overtaken sort of the non-Christian people under the age of 35, I think, if we go up in age, but the church as well. That God wants me to be good, 
that God cares about my emotional state, and that God is in some sense vaguely out there. This is where you meet people in the church um, that will say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe, my personal Lord and Savior, who rescued me from sin and darkness, but you know, that's just my opinion. Like, to say all that, uh, but this is, you. I mean, if you open your ears, you'll actually hear people act this way, is that, you know, I believe that God has conquered all these things, but that's just my belief. That's the deistic side of it in which the concreteness of what God has done is minimized. And so this one, I think, is one that continually shows up in our lives because we would like it more if the gospel were more just light morals and wanting us to be a little bit better, a little bit more therapeutic in the way in which God would emotionally care for our needs. And a little bit more vague, so it would be easier to live in the modern world. These challenges come for us. And Paul is trying to say, don't flee to these other Gospels. Stick with the one that he has announced unto you. And I don't, uh, well, we can... Don't hear me trying to be too critical of all this. I don't think we control the own gospel ourselves in our own walls. That's why Defiance Church is a witness to the good news that God is doing in the world, not the good news that God is doing in the world. We want to point to it. We want to aim towards it. We want to listen and be corrected by it all over again, as I, my hope is for this series in Galatians, that we will be, our, our compass will be pulled back into the gospel that Paul is announcing and passing on to us. But we are not the perfect ones who nail this all down. We are ones aiming to be corrected by that. The next uh, teaching that Paul had for us today, am I engaged in rhetorical arguments designed to sway crowds or am I intent on pleasing God? Do I seek merely to please human beings? If I were still doing that, I would not be a slave for Christ. For concerning the gospel preached by me, I want you to know, my brothers and sisters, that is not what human beings normally have in mind when they speak of good news. For I did not receive it from another human being, nor was I taught it. It came to me by God's apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul, the people pleaser, as I, as I joked about, is not, uh, is he just trying to please people? Is he just trying to make it easier? If these teachers coming in, and I'm trying to mirror what the teachers of the first century were doing with the teachers we have today, how the gospel might speak to us today. So the teachers of the first century, we don't have a lot around today. People who are uh, Jewish Christians or Christian Jews, we don't know exactly which, coming and say, adopt a little bit more of the law and festivals and also get circumcised. Um, If you have a guest preacher who says that, this passage is highly helpful to have, but we normally don't have guest preachers who say that in the modern world. That one, Paul has effectively stamped out. But what they accuse him of by taking off those things, some diet restrictions, um, some circumcision, is that he's just trying to make it easy on you. And Paul is trying to say, I'm not trying to please anyone other than God. I'm not trying to please you. What I'm trying to do is announce the gospel that God has revealed to me. And this is where they don't have in mind what they speak of good news. Good news um, in the ancient world, as we talked about the Evangelion, would more like be like a game of telephone, announcing over and over and over again. What Paul says about this good news is not that it comes by human hands, but it's revealed through the apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. 
It's revealed through an apocalypse. And he's going to say that in the next section. He's going to talk about how he, he was apocalypsed into God, and that's where his gospeling comes from. Here's the, the Greek word there for that. And one of the ways in which this word means is it's not apocalypse. We think of like everything falling down in the world. Um, uh, there's a, what the popular meme where the dog's sitting there and everything in the house is on fire and he says, this is just fine. Uh, living in denial of that. That's what we think of apocalypse. What, what the ancient word means is sort of this unveiling. And what Paul is trying to say is that he, what has been revealed to him is what is being unveiled is what God has done through Jesus Christ. And so this, this, this graph, I think, captures that well as what it is revealing to us is that um, time, I call it a graph, which is probably the worst description for this. This story um, captured in image form is God has apocalypsed through the cross and revealed that new creation is coming. That, that in the old age, slavery and sin and death ruled, but in the new age, life that is eternal, forgiveness, freedom, and new creation are being drawn into this. And what Paul is saying is that he's been apocalypsed, revealed this gospel that sort of hinges these ages together. And what people struggled with then and what people struggle with now is this overlap of the ages. That it's not just all victory and it's not um, still just waiting. I think that the, the teachers that they have coming here are ones who would have said, let's sit in the old age a little bit longer. But what Paul wants to say to them is the only thing that can free you from the powers that dominated the old age is the apocalypse that he's been revealed that's been revealed to him and the other disciples of Jesus Christ. The unveiling that those powers are now defeated through Jesus is the only thing that can open new paths. This is where it, there aren't just gospels like the ones that I went through on the screen. There's also gospels that aren't... Um, the first century world was a highly religious world, as we've talked about. And you walk around and saw all the other temples and all the other shrines. Um, and so you wouldn't have called those gospels. Um, but that is to say that our world, you could walk around and see all these other shrines of self-improvement, of productivity, of trying to have it all, of, of, of dieting and body image and all this. And all these things, Paul would say these rival things are just remaking you into slaves again trying to save yourself to perform through ritual acts of law, which is, uh, Paul, when he says works, often means works of law, these works of these old markers of the old age that were pointers to this but are now being confused as what can free you. Instead, Paul says all these things are helpless in getting you out of the trap you're stuck in. This might be perhaps one of our bigger challenges today is we, uh, at least for me, is I've got the gospel worked out. I'm not going to add other things to that. But how much more can I equip my life for productivity and effectiveness and beauty and this, that, and the other? How can I have um, the gospel of Jesus Christ and a good retirement account too? Um, which is not to say, again, I'm, I have a retirement account. So, you know, I'm not trying to advocate don't have one. But I think so often we don't overlay these false gospels that, that are taught to us by other teachers um, in the church on top of it. But so often the news, um, advertisements, um, even like the, the self-help sort of genre, which is massive. I don't mean this just about like 
uh, your regular self-help stuff. I think uh, the stoic movement that's big in the world today, um, uh, the the productivity movement, all these things, we don't view as rivals to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think what Paul would try to say is you're trying to capture it all. You're trying to have it all. And hear the good news. God has freed you from your sins. And he is setting about a new creation in the world. The end of Galatians, he's going to say, it's new creation that what matters. How do we, in this moment, become people of new creation, hearing again the gospel that Paul has preached to us? Let us pray. God, we live our lives in a world full of noise, of things that aim to distract and pull our hearts away from the good news of what you've done through Jesus Christ. This is news more than it is advice. It is news of your victory. It is news about how your son is liberating us. It is news about how the past life through baptism is left behind and we are raised to new life with you, which is our freedom. God, may we learn to live as people freed from the other gospels and the other religions of our world so that we can honor you and live into the spirit that you've given us. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.